All right, I'm not Pastor Tom. A couple new people here. I'm not the normal guy who gets up here and, and uh, preaches, just filling in. Uh, we're going to continue this morning. I don't know if you remember because it's uh, just a, a few times each year, but we're going to continue this morning uh, in the series of theological topics that Pastor Tom has assigned uh, to us fill-in preachers. Um, a topic we'll, we'll be discussing this morning is the authority of Scripture. You should probably conceive of what's about to happen um, a little bit more like a, a Sunday school class than an expository sermon, uh, and I feel the need to disclaim that a little bit. During our time this morning, I'll mention a number of passages, but I won't be preaching from or exegeting or expositing just one passage. I guess this is the nature of a topical message, but, uh, and frankly, this is true for all sermons that we hear, it's incumbent on all of us to consider carefully whether this discussion lines up with what the Bible teaches. I'd like to start, though, in the Bible by directing your attention to a particular passage of Scripture. It was the Scripture reading this morning, and I want to read just a few verses of it again. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4. I'll just read seven verses toward the beginning. I want to start with the last verse of chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, I guess, the last verse, and I'll be reading this time from the ESV. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, chapter 4, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I said a moment ago that it's important whenever we hear anyone speak to consider carefully whether what they're saying matches up with what the Bible actually teaches. And that brings us right to our subject this morning. We must compare what we hear to what we see in the Bible because the Bible, what it says, matters. This, in a simple form, is the authority of Scripture, right? Right? We affirm that what the, what the scriptures say matter, and that it matters the most. Now let's step, step back for a moment. Our belief in biblical authority is based on a, a simple premise. If God is God, if our God is the true God, and the only God, and the all-powerful and all-knowing creator God, surely what this God says has supreme authority. Consider the opening words of Isaiah Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord 
has spoken. Later in Isaiah chapter 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God rules. What he says goes. The scriptures, as the very words of God, possess the right to tell us what to believe and how to live. If this is from God, if this book is from God, then it must be true, and you must believe it and submit to it, or you ignore it and disobey it at your peril. Consider Psalm 119, 142, 151, 160. You don't have to turn there, but they say, in order the law, your law is true. All your commandments are true. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus' words in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How much of the Bible is God speaking? The Bible mentions God speaking or the words of God thousands of times, literally thousands. How much of Scripture is God commanding things, warning, instructing, promising? Kind of all of Scripture is that, right? God speaking with authority and exhorting obedience. The Bible is saturated all the way through with claims that God has indeed spoken and that you need to listen. The Bible self-evidently claims to be from God and claims to have authority over us. So there you go. We're all done. That's the authority of Scripture. We can just pray. I, I, I would guess that if you're here this morning, this likely isn't a new idea. It's not something you haven't heard before. It's not controversial. Hopefully, it's not. You already affirm the authority of Scripture. Now, perhaps whether our lives actually, day-to-day, bear out that we believe that is a, is a separate discussion. But you believe this. But this idea of the Bible, the Bible's authority, consider the outrageousness, the audacity of this claim outside of here. You probably don't have to try too hard. Picture witnessing to a neighbor or a stranger on the street and opening your Bible and reading perhaps Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And you hold out your Bible and you, and you point to it and you look in their eyes and awkward silence, maybe. Picture wading into a dangerous discussion of some hot societal topic in your workplace where you summon your courage and and you weigh in with something that comes across like, God has spoken, here it is, this is true, you should submit to it. Picture going onto a, a college campus, perhaps, and raising your hand in class and referencing what God says in the Bible as the decisive authority on a matter of morality or reality. Picture maybe a candidate for political office in some nationally televised debate just tossing out there that the Bible is the true words of God. And therefore, it has ultimate authority over everything and everyone. What kind of responses do you get? At the, at the very best, I think, at very best, you get a roll of the eyes, maybe a scornful smile. More likely, these, these days, maybe anger, something approaching anger from those who hear you. You might get reported to human resources for your extreme and intolerant views. You're, you're maybe shouted down in class, hopefully not. For the, the public statement by the political candidate, Twitter explodes. Protesters show up at every subsequent public appearance, probably at his house too. These kinds of words start riots. 
It occurs to me they did in Acts as well, in the book of Acts. But let's go further than that a little bit. If the scripture is truly the word of God, then all other religions, all other holy books, so-called, are wrong. They're false. They're written by liars, which sounds mean. Lunatics, maybe that's a little nicer. Maybe not, I don't know. (laughs) In case you've forgotten, Jesus said things like, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Early in the life of the church, Peter reiterates, Acts 4, I think, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. God speaks in the book of Isaiah, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Psalm 96, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. The litmus test of all religions, the litmus test of all people, is what they think about what this book says about God and Jesus. How scandalous is this, right? I don't think you have to try very hard to feel the awkwardness of some of the things I've just said, like keep your voice down, don't let other people hear. It's scandalous. It means, another thing, an implication is it means that the Bible is not the private book of a particular faith community. We have our own private faith And good for us, we have our holy book, you have yours. No. If this book is from God, then all others are false. If if what this book says is true, then everything and everyone that disagrees with it is wrong. Everyone is supposed to sit up and pay attention to this book. It makes claims that apply to all people everywhere. It's understandable then, isn't it, that people out there react to these audacious claims of exclusivity with outrage. What arrogance to claim that your way is the only way, that your God is the only God, that you're right and everyone else is wrong. How dare you claim to have the only and authoritative words of God? And they're right. If this book is not from God, but if it is, And so everything hinges on whether or not the Bible is actually from God. And so the question boils down to this, and this is where we'll spend our time this morning. Why exactly do we believe that the Bible is from God? How can we know? What warrant is there to believe this? Is there reasonable cause for believing this to be the word of God? Do we believe it just by a leap of blind faith? Is that the nature of our invitation to non-Christians? Just believe it. Take a chance. Come on. Just believe this and, and not something else. What exactly is the basis of this most fundamental of Christian doctrines, that the Bible is God's word? That God has spoken, he has revealed himself, and here it is. Why would anyone believe that? Why do you believe it. A missionary goes to a pre-literate tribe in the jungles of the Amazon. People who've, who've never heard of Israel 
or Jesus or the Bible, this book. Maybe they're headhunters who killed the last pale-faced missionary who tried to speak with them. Why should those people believe that this book, which they've never seen before, they've never seen any book before, why should they believe that this book is from God? How would they come to that conviction and a conviction of the truth of this that's so deep that they stake their lives on it? They come to faith and would be willing to die for it, maybe just days later because they betrayed the tribe. How is such a belief warranted? How is that justifiable? How is that reasonable? A girl who grows up in a church like this goes off to college and then into the working world. She's long past Mom and dad told me so as being a legitimate basis for her beliefs. Why should she continue to believe that this is God's word? What basis is there? When, when many around her, she'll find out, like we all have, that many around her will scorn such a belief. Perhaps even seeming to offer real evidence and compelling arguments to the contrary. What warrant is there for her to believe that this is from God and so it's reliable? Can she really have certainty? That this, is, a, that this is, is true, a rock-solid conviction in the truth of God's word in the face of manifold attacks and the scorn of her peers. Why should you believe it? When you have your doubts, maybe going through some significant difficulty in your life, lying awake at night trying to remember why you are supposed to believe all this, maybe shamed into silence about Jesus at work, struggling with how to put your faith into words to share with someone else and realizing sometimes it feels like it comes out as just such an oddly improbable story. How is your belief justified? Why should you believe that this is really from God? Most of you do believe that, I assume. Why do you? And everything hinges on whether or not we believe that, like I said. Take a second and think about That question, why do you believe this to be God's word? It's not Sunday school, so you can't raise your hand. So if you give the wrong answer, you know, you're not in danger of of doing that. Take a minute and think about it. What gives you firm confidence? What reason would you give to someone else? Time's up. Let me venture a few guesses at the kinds of ideas that are rattling around in our minds at the moment. I expect these are things you've heard before. Maybe, maybe some of these have, have flitted through your mind just over the last couple minutes. The first reason that you might believe that this is God's word is that someone told you so. You believe that the Bible is from God and is true because someone else told you that it is, and you trust them. Perhaps the obvious example of this, it seems to me the first obvious example, is, is Roman Catholicism. So Catholics believe that this is God's word because the church says so. That is specifically why they believe it. It is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that this is God's word. The popes have unanimously declared it to be so down through the ages, and tens of millions of Roman Catholics worldwide believe it for that reason. This is the same reason that a five-year-old in this church would say that he believes it, because mom and dad and the Sunday school teacher, Pastor Tom, and his older brother They all say so. And so he believes it too. Outside of Christianity for a moment, this is the very reason that Muslims believe the Quran is from the one true God, Allah. The Islamic authorities have declared it to be so. 
And in most places, everyone the Muslim individual knows believes it. It's what they grew up with. Everyone believes it except some uh, mysterious infidel out there that they've heard tell of. And the guys in charge say it is so. Why wouldn't you believe it? This reason is perhaps asserted from many evangelical pulpits every Sunday. Prominent pastor so-and-so declares with great vehemence that this is God's word, and you believe him, don't you? We might say that you believe in the scriptures on the basis of authority, the authority of someone else. The church says so, your pastor, your parents, the charismatic preacher you found on YouTube. These people are smarter than you, maybe, They're in authority over you, perhaps, and so you trust them. You trust in them. Obviously, that is insufficient, right? And unsatisfactory. It may work for you inside the community for a little while, but is this really what's supposed to convince the tribesmen in the jungle to believe and to wager his life on it? Believe this stuff because other smart people do. Trust me, they do. You haven't heard of them, but they do, really. Trust me. Is this sufficient to carry the the girl who grew up in church through her college years and beyond? I'm being confronted by many seemingly smart people who say this is crazy and provide much seemingly good evidence against the Bible, but I'll just stick with what mom and dad and the pastor I grew up with said. This is supposed to convince the, the Somali Muslim here in San Diego. You think your Quran is from God, but actually... It's the Bible, that's from God. You're wrong. I'm right, trust me. Surely not. Obviously not. We can do better. The second reason, and I'm guessing some of you were thinking along these lines, or or maybe it's a category of reasons given for believing that the Bible is true, let's call it apologetics. What we're talking about here is empirical evidence, historical reasoning, logical arguments, So in this category are things like archaeology, so the the ever-growing body of archaeological support for people and places and events from the Bible that were previously doubted. You probably know about some of that. There's whole books of uh, good scholarly research on that subject, so you can go read those. That's all I'm going to say about archaeology. In this category are organizations who research and defend the biblical account of creation, for example, providing us with good evidence and reasonable arguments for belief. Some people might point, point to things like how influential the Bible has been down through the, the centuries, over thousands of years, across cultures, and the fact that the Bible and the church remain after so much persecution and so many attempts to eradicate them. The very existence of the Christian religion, the preservation of the Bible, and its worldwide influence are perhaps evidence of its divine origin. We could talk about experience, our own experience, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we might raise our hands and, and, and say, that happened to me. I'm an example of that. God has changed me. It's real. Transformed lives are a kind of evidence for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of scripture. These are what we'd call external evidences. Still within the category of apologetics, moving a little bit into the actual content of the Bible, you could argue that the scriptures, uh, one argument I've seen made is that the scriptures have such a cohesive and consistent message in spite of the fact that they were written by more than 40 people 
over more than 1,600 years? What about miracles recorded in Scripture? Surely those are evidence for the supernatural origin of Christianity. Similarly, fulfilled prophecy. In studying for this morning, I listened to one message by a, by a preacher, and he took time to look at Isaiah 53, and he made a great, compelling, detailed, pretty complicated case for how that was fulfilled in Jesus. It was amazing. What about something like the fact that the scriptures don't present its founding fathers, its prominent men, as perfect? Abraham is, is we're told, twice lies about his wife. First to Pharaoh, then to King Abimelech, telling them that she's his sister. It's pretty terrible. I don't think our wives would appreciate it. Moses is uh, wimpy, super wimpy at the beginning at least. And ultimately Moses, the greatest of all prophets until John the Baptist, sins in such a bad way that he's forbidden from entering the promised land. The thing that everything was leading up with, he doesn't get to. David. What could we say about David? Murder and adultery, just for starters. Peter denies Christ. What other religion tells such embarrassing stories about its key figures? We could perhaps point to the many unique and unexpected, uh, maybe unexpected teachings of the Bible. How could a man come up with the scripture's teaching regarding sin, regarding man's sin problem? our sin nature, utter helplessness to save yourself. Who would have devised that? What about ethical teachings in favor of things like humility and selflessness and meekness? What person apart from the Bible values those kinds of things? The paradoxes like losing your life to save it and and sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Most significant of all, I think, true Christianity is singular in its teaching that salvation reconciliation to God comes not through your own works. You don't earn it. You can't. But just through reliance, faith, on the achievement of another. Perhaps you can think of more things that you'd put into this category of apologetics, whether external evidences or or things that we start to see in the Bible. And some, perhaps more than others, there there, there is value in these things. There's value in learning about the kinds of things I just listed and spending time considering them. They help. But the question remains, is this kind of stuff the reason that you believe the Bible is from God? Was it through a study of this kind of evidence for the Bible's truth that you came to believe? You looked at the latest data from the archaeologists. You considered the arguments of the young earth creationists. You investigated instances of fulfilled prophecy within the Bible, and you decided to believe. They, they had you in an intellectual headlock. What could you do? You had to believe. The evidence was too compelling. Is apologetics, as the term for all of this stuff, is that how anyone comes to true faith? And I assert that the answer is no. You could tell I was leading up to that. It's not to say that apologetics doesn't play a role. It often does. But it's not the clinching role. It's more of a a foot-in-the-door role. Making a case for the historical reliability of the Bible, making a case for the reasonableness and harmony of its doctrine, 
pointing out the uniqueness of Scripture's teachings. These are all good things, and they can play a role in perhaps breaking down barriers in someone's mind. Getting the Bible a fair hearing, maybe. Helping people see the reasonableness of Christianity. But they are far from the deciding factor. Apologetic, philosophical, historical, logical reasoning and arguments, they're helpful in the moment when somebody really good is doing it. Not like today. It can, it can be compelling in that moment, in the moment that you're reading it, in the moment that you're hearing it, in great detail and at great length, but you can't remember much of it later. When talking with others, are you ever really able to provide in any useful detail these kinds of historical, philosophical, logical arguments? Maybe, maybe somebody in here would say, like, I'm good at it. Does, does someone else's salvation hang by the thin thread of you remembering the evidence and being able to reconstruct the arguments? I sure hope not. And not just for witnessing, but again, when you are lying awake at night, struggling with your own doubts, wrestling with temptation, enduring a severe trial, is this what you turn to? Even if you wanted to, would you be able to rehearse to yourself these lists, this evidence, these arguments? And even if you could, would they help? Is this kind of thing what brings you solace and shores up your faith? Must your faith, must anyone's faith, rely on their ability to remember and reproduce in times of crisis arguments and evidence? Is the only access that the Amazonian native has to coming belief to, to a belief in the Bible and, and being well to, willing to sell all and risk his life for Christ, the only access he has is by cataloging evidence and memorizing rational arguments? Can a young child know that the Bible is true with a well-warranted and, and real faith only if they can wrap their minds around this kind of stuff? For the girl heading to college, is this what we should prioritize arming her with above all else? Is this what is supposed to be able to sustain her faith? If not, then what? There's a third option. There's probably many more options, but we're just going to jump to the right answer. <laughs> and I submit to you that this third option, even if you're an apologetics buff, even if that's your thing, and there are some people who love that, this is really the reason that you believe the Bible. Whether or not you ex have ever explicitly realized it or thought about it in these terms, this is the reason that every believer believes. Let me introduce the right answer this, this way. Jonathan Edwards was, you, you've heard that name, I hope, the great early American pastor and theologian, integral leader in the First Great Awakening on this side of the Atlantic. Jonathan Edwards, for the last eight years of his life, he lived out in a frontier town in Massachusetts and ministered to Native Americans, Indians. This was in the 1750s, so it's about a few decades before the, the Revolutionary War, 100, and 100 plus years after the Pilgrims first arrived. And having ministered until that time to good English Christians with a long history of religion, some biblical religion, he wrestled now, as you can imagine, with how to evangelize the ignorant and illiterate, pre-literate 
Native Americans, these Housatonic Indians couldn't read. They didn't have a written language. It wasn't their fault. They had no sense of world history. They knew nothing of Judaism or Christianity, hadn't even heard the words. Unimpacted by the Renaissance, much less the Reformation, they didn't think like Western Europeans. They didn't prioritize logic and reason and empirical evidence. Let me read to you some of Jonathan Edwards' thoughts about this problem. And this is phrased a little bit difficult, difficultly, so try to bend your mind to it. Okay, first quote, It is impossible that men who have not something of a general view of the historical world or the series of history from age to age should come at the force of the arguments for the truth of Christianity drawn from history to the degree as to effectually induce them to venture their all upon it. Okay, filed that away. Hopefully you got a little bit. Next quote. There are at least 19 and 20, if not 99 in 100, of those for whom the scriptures were written, all mankind, who are not capable of any certain or effectual conviction of the divine authority of the scriptures by such arguments as learned men use. If men who have been brought up in heathenism must wait for a clear and certain conviction of the truth of Christianity until they have learning and acquaintance with the histories of modern nations, enough to see clearly the force of such kind of arguments, it will make the evidence of the gospel to them immensely cumbersome and will render the propagation of the gospel among them infinitely difficult. And this is the last bit. Miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians. If they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ in any other way but this, the path of historical reasoning. Again, I know the, the phrasing is, is tough. Do you grasp a little bit of what he's saying? Historical reasoning is Edward's term for what we today might call apologetics, roughly. And he says, miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians if historical reasoning, apologetics, is the path by which they must come to a sincere conviction of the truth of Christianity, a conviction sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ. If that's the path, they're in trouble. He says, if people who have been brought up in heathenism, the Housatonic Indians, the man in the Amazon jungle, most Americans these days, if people who have been brought up in heathenism, if these people... For these people, a clear and certain conviction of the truth of Scripture must wait until they have learned the history, investigated the archaeology, heard all the arguments, considered all the evidence. Then surely, salvation is rendered immensely difficult. Why would anyone submit to such a burdensome education unless they already believed? And surely there are some who won't have the innate intelligence to be able to grasp the importance of the arguments. How many people will make the time? How many people have the training, the aptitude, the patience? Who would come to Christ this way? Miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians if this is the path. If this is the path, most people have no chance. And yet, the Bible assumes that those who hear the gospel may know the truth of it, and not years down the road. And they may know the truth of it with such clarity and assurance that they stake their lives on it. In fact, 
Scripture exhorts them to stake their lives on it. In New Testament times and in some times and places since then, you have people converting to Christianity and almost immediately being martyred for it. What would give such conviction? The Bible assumes that people may know the truth of the Scriptures apart from external evidences, but through the written word itself. John begins his first letter, 1 John, this way, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard, we're proclaiming to you. It's what he's writing down, and it's the Bible. He's handing it to us, so that we would have fellowship with them and the Father and his Son. John ends that letter this way, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I wrote the letter for this reason, John says, that you may know that you have eternal life. Luke introduces his gospel by saying, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the third option here for how we, tr- how we come to truly believe that the Bible is God's word is that the Bible is self-authenticating. There is something within the Bible itself that authenticates its divine origin. Edward said it this way, the gospel of the blessed God does not go abroad a begging for its evidence. I like that. The gospel does not go abroad a begging for its evidence so much as some think. It has its highest and most proper evidence in itself. If you want to, if you still have your Bibles open, look back at 2 Corinthians 4, and this time just verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The reason we believe the scriptures is because we have come to the scriptures and with the eyes of our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see God there. The something within the Bible itself that gives us clear and certain conviction that it's God's word and that the gospel is true is seeing the beauty and the glory of God there. It's not evidence and reasoning from outside the scriptures that causes anyone to truly and ultimately, with their hearts, believe the Bible. It's only that someone comes to the Bible itself and sees God. Edwards concludes, Thus, a soul may have a kind of intuitive knowledge of the divinity of the things exhibited in the gospel. Not that he judges the doctrines of the gospel to be from God without any argument or deduction at all, but it is without a long chain of arguments. The argument is but one, and the evidence direct. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel by but one step, and that is its divine glory. It's not the result of a long chain of arguments and evidence, but it is a single step of coming to Scripture and seeing their divine glory. Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians 1 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. And he goes on to tell them things. 
that they would know. What this means for you is that the reason you believe that the Bible is God's word is that you came to this word and are still coming, and you read it, and the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your heart to see God's beauty and glory. And the pinnacle of this glory is Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible is self-authenticating. You were looking in here in the Bible, and God did a supernatural work to show you himself. You come to the Bible, and you see it radiating forth the glory of God. I wonder what you think about that. There are probably some people here who that hits you as really new. You haven't heard it in those words. I, I hope at the very least there's echoes of things that you've heard before, but I'm a little concerned it's, it sounds new. Let me give three, before we conclude, three biblical analogies that very closely, they're very closely related, they're hopefully helpful. So you can see this same kind of theme in slightly different areas. Okay, the first analogy is the created world. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the sky, shows forth, proclaims his handiwork. Is that true? Do the heavens declare the glory of God? Well, this is a message on the truth of the Bible, so we have to say yes. (laughs) But my point, of course, is that many people, most people, look up to the heavens at night, say, and they see the stars, and they don't see God. Most people don't look at the heavens and see God. Most people would say, what? No, the heavens don't declare the glory of God. I don't hear anything. What are you talking about, crazy Christians? On the same subject, consider Romans 1, 19 and 20. So this is the second half of Romans. Uh, the, The section begins with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Is it true that God has made his existence and divine power plain to men, to all men through creation? Paul says, God has shown it to them. Through what he has made, God has made his existence and his power obvious. Paul even says that people are obligated to see it. It's so clear that people who who don't see it, they don't have an excuse. So the scripture teaches that God and his glory and his power are clearly revealed through the creation, shouted out from the sky, obvious, it's plain. Some people see it, acknowledge it, and some don't, but it's there. We all see the created world, but there's another kind of seeing that's supposed to happen. So the analogy is that everyone sees the creation, the world, the heavens, but many don't see the creator whom the creation declares. And everyone can see the Bible and pass their eyes over the words, but many don't see God. Follow that away for a second. The second analogy is Jesus himself. When Jesus was here on earth, the incarnation, God in flesh, he looked like just a normal guy, right? Not like you and me, like a guy of that time. He looked like just a normal guy, but he was God. 
John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples reply, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus follows up with saying, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, right, answers his moment to shine, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So John recognized Jesus as God. And Peter saw it. Judas didn't see it. The Pharisees didn't see it. So people saw the same miracles and heard the same teaching. Some saw Jesus for who he was. They beheld his glory, as John says, but many people did not. Seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Why did John and Peter look at Jesus and see glory and believe? Was it that they saw the miracles, heard his unique teaching, gathered the evidence, searched the Old Testament scriptures for prophecy, compared it to Jesus, and and realized he just had to be it? He was definitely the Messiah. What choice did they have? Thousands more saw and heard and knew these same things and yet rejected Jesus. Same Jesus, same data. It was that John and Peter looked at Jesus and with the eyes of their heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saw God. They saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16? So Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So that's the second analogy. The the very Son of God shows up in history. The Word became flesh, full of grace and truth, radiating glory, and it was the sight of that glory that caused some to believe, but not everyone. Everyone saw, but not everyone saw. The last analogy, the third analogy, is the gospel. And now we're, we're overlapping quite a bit with Scripture itself, which is good. How does someone get saved? How was someone convinced in his heart of the truth of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus so that he turns to God with saving faith? Is it through historical support for the existence of Jesus? Is it because someone makes a case, an airtight, undeniable case, that believing in Jesus is is reasonable, that the gospel makes sense and logically works, intellectual headlock? Those kinds of things are helpful, often helpful, But those are, of course, not the decisive factor in anyone's salvation. You know what really happened? What really happened when you came to the Lord? A supernatural, spiritual light started shining in your heart. The eyes of your heart were enlightened. God started taking away your blindness, which was from the God of this world. He took it away, started waking you up to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. God flashed on the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Most people, most of the time, hear the gospel and nothing. You were there once. You were, you're being preached at. You're told what God did through Jesus, how precious Jesus is, and... Whatever. You're presented with the gospel and you are not seeing glory. 
The God of this world has blinded your mind to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You're being shown Jesus and you are not seeing the glory of God in his face. The gospel is true and beautiful and glorious. Some see that truth and love that beauty and are dazzled by the glory and they believe and some don't and aren't and won't. It's the same Bible. It's the same with the Bible. It is objectively true. It's bursting forth with the glory and beauty of God. God is here in the scriptures and he is glorious. Seeing this is the ground of our conviction that this is the word of God. So again, my assertion is the reason that you or anyone believes the Bible is God's word is because you come to the scriptures and with the eyes of your heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see God's unique glory there. If you come to this book and you take time to read it, and when God gives you spiritual eyes, you will see the dazzling glory of God, particularly in Jesus and in his gospel, such that you will know it's true, that God is real, that these are his words. It's through this kind of encounter with God's revelation here in the scriptures that we come to a real and warranted, legitimate and rock-solid faith in his word. It's because we have truly seen the glory of God. There is much more that could be said, uh, manifold implications that, that occur to me and maybe to you, how we hold our faith, how we witness, what we use to witness, how we train our children and prepare them for life in the world. But I w- I'll conclude with just one, one more thought. Uh, this will be very quick. I think as conservative Christians who are heirs of battles fought over inspiration and inerrancy and authority of the Bible, which is great, we are, we're tempted to imagine ourselves as courageous defenders of an embattled view of Scripture. We're standing up for God's word, defending it, fighting off attacks. It's in danger, but we're stepping in, marshalling our evidence, sharpening and then flailing our apologetic sword. And there is a nugget of truth in that, perhaps. But, and there's certainly value in those who do apologetic work, and, and we're grateful for that. But that picture is not the truest conception of our situation. For all believers, it's not we who are desperately holding on to an embattled scripture. The Bible stands. God has spoken. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away, right? Jesus said, The scripture cannot be broken. It's not that we are holding on to an embattled scripture, but that the scripture is holding us. To believe is to have come to the Bible and been captivated by what we see there, to be captured and held by what we have seen, namely the beauty and glory of God and his ways and his son.